Welcome back to Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. I'm Jack Llewellyn. Thanks for joining me today. If you listened to the last episode, you'll remember we talked a little bit about the CIA and their black ops. We talked some about El Chapo and his potential relationship or uh, some other activities with or surrounding the CIA. And then we talked a little bit about the Garcia Luna trial. But after the episode um, was recorded, I started thinking a lot more about El Chapo. Uh, And a lot's been written about him. There's been movies, you know, uh, there's been documentaries. But one of the things that kind of intrigued me was the idea that he has seemingly pissed off a lot of people over time. You know, you, you could think of the AFO or the BLO and, uh, you know, different connections that he had. And that also got me then to thinking a little bit about the Sinaloa cartel and the formation of it. And more importantly, thinking to you know, where are uh, pockets of information you know, if if we're trying to find out what happened in Mexico in the 80s. So let's even say we're really interested in 80 to 90, which covers the rise of Felix Gallardo, the rise of, of Rafael Caracantero, the tragedy of Agent Camarena, the... Um, division of territories by Felix Gallardo, however that actually went down. But if that's the the stuff that we're really interested in, not to the exclusion of everything else, but if that's really interesting, you know, the number of places to get good, verifiable information becomes less and less over time, right? People die. That, that Memories fade, documents go away to the extent there ever were any. That's a really long-winded way of introducing the topic for today. And we are going to talk about one Jesus Hector Luis Palma Salazar, also known as El Guerra Palma. And we're going to talk about him For the reasons I mentioned, and also because the discussion fits with the direction we were going last week and will continue to go on, which is thinking about how we bring all these different facets together and whether we can draw some conclusions or make some assumptions. And I I don't want to give too much of a preview because I want it to play out, but it all fits together a little bit. Now, before we talk about El Guerrero, something I want to say, I have noted over time how hard it is to get good information about things that happened in Mexico with some of these cartel leaders, say in the the 70s and 80s. This story that I'm going to go through today with respect to El Guerrero is one that 
I think we can we can agree in general terms. Most of the evidence says certain things happened. When they happened can become part of a, a, a dispute. Um, and I spent a lot of time this week looking at different information, and it's all over the board. And then even if you get kind of a, a series of events, when they happen, which order they were in, is absolutely crazy. And there are some sites, not necessarily reputable sites, but sites that people go to a lot. Um, I don't want to disparage anyone, but let's just say one of them starts with wiki. Um, it makes no sense. It's gibberish when you read it because the timeline absolutely doesn't fit. So what I did this week and what I'm going to present today is my best analysis of of what happened, in what order, and roughly about what time. I am not saying that it's absolutely perfect. And I can tell you there are websites, there's social media, there's you know weird articles in different places that say very different things. So not saying this is perfect um, or that it's absolutely factual, but I think it's pretty damn close. And it continues to tell the story we want to tell. At the end, the point that we're going to make is valuable whether or not the sequence is exactly in order or the dates are exactly correct. All right. Jesus Hector Luis Palma Salazar was born in Sinaloa on April 29th. (laughs) That much we know for sure. The year he was born is somewhere between 1950 and 1962. A lot of places put it in 1960, um, but a lot of them have serious disputes with respect to that. Okay, So, he has a lot of people in his business started off in you know a pretty poor area he eventually turned to a life of crime he dropped out of school i think when he was like 13 or so he was a car thief for a while did miscellaneous crimes and in a way we don't really know the story too he eventually began to work for miguel angel felix gallardo We've talked about a lot, and everybody knows about him, right? And he started off initially as just part of a crew of hitmen, sicarios, however you want to call it. Um, But he um, apparently had some aptitude, and uh, he eventually rose up to be something that gets referred to in some places as a logistics manager for Felix Gallardo's operation. And again, you're going to see over and over and over places saying that he was the logistics manager for the Guadalajara cartel. He was the logistics manager for Felix Gallardo. Okay. And, and again, that logistics manager is, is a term. I don't think that's what they called him at the time, but eventually he becomes 
this logistics manager for the area of Sonora. And it's there that he first gets associated with or comes to know El Chapo. Now, here's where we get into who knows exactly when it happened and everything else. But at some point in time, a shipment or cargo um, belonging to Felix was was retained <laughs> by uh, El Guerrero and or El Chapo and or somebody by the name of El Lobito Redamoza. Various stories on which one was involved and everything else. What we do know is that El Lobito Redamoza was killed shortly after this happened, but uh, El Guerrero was okay. He stayed along, and he eventually became associated, or shortly after this, became associated with a Venezuelan named Rafael Clavel Moreno. Some sources say that Clavel and El Guerrero were linked by Felix Gallardo. In other words, Felix Gallardo put Clavel to work with Guerrero, El Guerrero, as a result of this missing or retained shipment. Okay? So what actually happens, though, is Clavel, who apparently was something of a Don Juan, um, he married one of Palma's sisters, and then he became involved with Palma's wife, Guadalupe Leja of Palma. Okay? Uh, he eventually, apparently, Clavel convinces her to take about 2 million pesos from her accounts, and they left and went on a romantic vacation to San Francisco. Turns out it wasn't so romantic. Uh, Once in the hotel, once he had the 2 million pesos, Clavel apparently uh, cut her throat, dismembered her head, and then kept it well-preserved in a cooler. Fifteen days later, and exactly how this sequence occurs, I'm not sure, and I could not find enough information to even make a reasonable guess. But 15 days later, he takes Hector Jesus and Natalie, uh, sons of Palma and Guadalupe, to San Cristobal, Venezuela. And then he proceeds to throw them from the bridge of La Concordia, takes video, takes video of the event, and sends it to Palma, a Guerrero. Okay. So, now, quick aside, it's in, it, possible, possible that a Guerrero was in jail at this time, and so there was nothing that he could do about it. And when he gets the video or hears about the video, he, um, you know, again, there's, he's, he's confined. 
again, it's hard to place that. But what we do know for sure is that his wife's head was preserved in a cooler, and there was video of his kids being thrown off a bridge by Clavel. Clavel was almost immediately arrested and then assassinated in jail again almost immediately. Two different versions of, of that. El Guerrero had deep connections to the Mexican police. And one version of events is that his connections were what got Clavel arrested and killed. A second version of events is that this was all set up by Miguel Felix Gallardo, who said, yeah, you're going to, if you're going to steal my stuff, you're going to take my shipment. I'm going to exact revenge. And here's how I did it. I did it through Clavel, but I don't want anybody to, to be able to trace it back to me. And the one who can do it is Clavel. So I had him arrested and assassinated. Okay. What we do know, though, is that El Guerrero took out um, his anger on a number of people over time, which includes um, Rafael Clavel's lawyer, who also happened to be a lawyer for Felix Gallardo, um, several members of the Ariano Felix family, um, and, and some others. So there becomes this, you know, he, this back and forth retribution. Uh, he actually ends up building a mausoleum to that, where his wife and kids are buried, um, and has a, it's beautiful. It's big. It's expensive, has almost like a Sistine chapel, like, roof that has a picture of or a painting of his wife and kids depicted as angels in, in heaven. Um, if you're a parent, you, you can look at that and it's, um, it, 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 it's sad, however you want to look at it. Now, here's something that gets attributed in some places and not in others. We've talked in the past about the nightclub attack in Puerto Vallarta where uh, some of the Ariano Felix brothers were, you know, partying. There was an attack at the nightclub. The, the brothers escape. This is the event that really precipitated the, the huge battle, you know, the long-term war between the Ariano Felix brothers and El Chapo, some people have suggested that El Guerrero had some direct involvement in this, whether it was as a support for El Chapo or otherwise is a little bit uncertain. Some people have tried to suggest that it wasn't El Chapo at all who was behind it. It was it was El Guerrero. I don't think many of us really think that that's what how it went down. Right? We've talked to people who uh, you know we talked to 
Steve Duncan, who you know was involved in the um, the, the investigation of, of AFO for many years, and and you know he that's not how he heard it or anything else. So I don't think that's the case, but he may have been involved in one way or another. Then we get to July 1989, and that's when, um, and, and again, not necessarily in chronological order, but remember, there's the, the Acapulco meeting and the Sinaloa cartel is kind of formed. Um, you know, there's this division, you got the Tijuana cartel, you got the Sinaloa cartel. The end result is that Palma, El Mayo, and El Chapo become the basic triumvirate running the Sinaloa cartel, right? And there was a great deal of jealousy between especially Palma and the Ariano Felix brothers, because they got Tijuana, which was perceived to be a more valuable, a more lucrative financially uh, plaza than others. Now, again, that doesn't always really add up because, as we've talked about before, what Felix Garda was doing there if we genuinely believe the stories was almost just saying, okay, here's how it's going to be. But a lot of it was how it was right. And, and the idea that somehow Palma would have all of a sudden been in charge of Tijuana seems a little bit far-fetched and it seems unlikely that that's what caused the rift. But I wanted to make note of those allegations because then that fits back into this kind of sequence of events that, that I mentioned earlier. So in 1995, Palma gets arrested. Talk about having bad luck. June 23, 1995, he's in a Learjet and he's going to attend a wedding. He's going from Ciudad Obregón uh, in Sonora to Guadalajara, and the jet has uh, engine problems, can't find a new landing strip, and it crash lands. He um, apparently had a full uh, federal judicial police uniform available to him that he puts on, and somehow the, the story is that he evades arrest for a little while because people see him in in a uniform. Eventually, some others come up. He's injured, but not critically injured. Uh, But he's nursing his wounds, and all of a sudden, somebody comes in, or a group of, of military folks come in, and they see him with a lot of guns and some drugs. Then they... You know, they they take him into custody and figure out who he is. So he's sentenced then for uh, seven years, and he gets set, sent to Puta Grande, the penitentiary in Jalisco. 
um, in Guadalajara, right outside of Guadalajara. Um, and he's actually in prison with El Chapo for a period of time. Then El Chapo escapes in 2001, and you kind of know the rest. So 2002 comes along. He's about ready to leave prison in Mexico, and he gets extradited, or there's extradition proceedings that start. So he ends up staying in the Mexican prison in Puta Grande for another five years while the extradition process goes on finally is extradited in 2007. He's uh, convicted in the United States, sent to Atwater Federal Prison in Atwater, California. He has a 17-year sentence. He serves only nine years because uh, he provided some element of cooperation to authorities, and apparently he had good behavior. So he was extradited back to Mexico uh, in June of 2016. And you would think he would be free, right? Wrong. He gets picked up by the Mexican police and is charged with, well, initially they say, all right, we want to investigate other things he's done. He's eventually charged with a double murder of some police officers in Nayarit in 1995. And then he's held as essentially a, um, a material witness. And then he's held in something that's almost called like protective custody. So he um, remains in prison. And one of the things that was fascinating about him was his relationship with El Chapo. And I'm going to present it from two different ways. There is a book and uh, a series of articles. There's a, a profile in Rolling Stone magazine that talks about a 1998 meeting that DEA personnel had with El Chapo in Puta Grande prison. And apparently at one point after El Chapo had talked uh, for quite a bit, he turned the conversation to El Guerrero and essentially said, what do you want to know? And the article in the book say that this kind of took the DA by surprise because they assumed that they were still friends and partners. El Chapo, however, said that they hadn't spoken in about four years, that their ties had been broken in 1994 because El Guerrero ordered the killing of El Chapo's brother-in-law, a um, Sal Lopez, who was the brother of El Chapo's second wife, Griselda Lopez. He said, he being El Chapo, told the DEA that El Guerrero had ordered the murder without sanction and he hadn't gone to El Chapo for his blessings. And so he um, said that he was forced, that's El Chapo's words according to this article, forced to break ties with his friend and partner despite their years of working together. 
and despite their hatred of the Ariano Felix brothers. Now, as a quick aside, the one other thing that's interesting in this article talking about El Chapo, other than the fact that he had talked to the DEA, was his absolute total fear of the Ariano Felix brothers, that they were going to kill him, they were going to do all kinds, you know, they were going to do assassinations and blame it on El Chapo, all kinds of things. It's really kind of interesting to read. Um, so to continue the story, El Chapo says, haven't talked to El Guerrero in years, even though my brother and my former pilot, um, somebody by the name of Miguel Angel Martinez Martinez, both worked with El Guerrero in some capacity, but haven't talked to him in four years, even though we're incarcerated together at Puta Grande. So what he says is he would be, he, El Chapo, says to the DEA, look, you got to do something for me and you got to protect me from the Ariana Felix brothers, but I will provide information on El Guerrero and everything that he's doing, everything involving the Sinaloa cartel or any other operations he had. And he said in 24 hours, he could give um, the DEA and the PGR information on the whereabouts of drug storages and weapons caches. Within a week's notice, he could provide information on the group's entire infrastructure, including corrupt uh, officials. Um, he specifically could provide information on El Guerrero's home base um, of Tepic, or Tepic in the uh, state of Nayarit, as well as the city of San Luis, Rio, Colorado, which is where he said El Guerrero's people often crossed drugs and did things. So El Chapo, big bad El Chapo, scared to death of the Ariano Felix brothers, says to the DEA, if you help me out, if you help protect me, here's what I can do for you. Now, all kinds of things happen after that, and the DEA doesn't go back, is not allowed to go back and talk to him anymore, allegedly because um, a U.S. attorney in the United States, essentially told the DEA um, agents involved in this to back off because they were afraid that their conversations were going to impact a future trial for El Chapo, one that eventually did come. Uh, it's also worth noting that several of the people who were involved in this meeting in Punta Grande prison uh, on the Mexican side ended up being murdered at different times. So a very interesting story. Um, you know, uh, you can, you can read it for yourself and judge how much of it exactly you want to believe. Now, what about looking at the relationship between El Chapo and El Guerrero from the other side, from El Guerrero's perspective? Interestingly, he hasn't talked a lot, but there are Mexican 
um, newspaper reports, none of them recent, but where El Guerrero has said a couple of things about El Chapo. Number one is he said that throughout El Chapo's career, he was an informant for the DEA, that he provided information about other cartel members or other cartels and their members to the DEA. And he makes, well, let me rephrase that. And there are oblique references in these newspaper reports to other intelligence agencies of the U.S. government. The reporting on those is far different than um, than you would see today. What you end up with, or some of the ones that I've looked at, are as opposed to what you would think would be a, a long expose that you would see in you know, the LA Times or something, it ends up being a one or two or three paragraph story in the Mazatlan Gazette. I don't think it's called the Gazette. But so it's 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 hard to indicate or to um to even evaluate the veracity of the claims. And as I say, generally speaking, El Guerrero has not spoken a lot, at least not publicly or anything that's become public. But there are three or four or five references that I found to him directly saying El Chapo was working with the DEA or at least informing the DEA in order to put the DEA on the trail of other cartels, other members of cartels, and keep some of the pressure off of him. Okay. What about um, El Guerrero now? He's currently in Antiplano Prison, which is in Mexico City or near Mexico City. On February 9th of this year, he was taken from the prison to the Adolfo Lopez Mateos Medical Center, which was said to be a highly specialized facility. Uh, he was, it, it said that he um, was only there for 20 minutes, routine checkup. Uh, the, uh, there's some reporting on Borderland Beat that it, it took like a convoy of National Guard and Army units to move him from the prison to the hospital and back. All right, so what, why? Why did I just spend a half hour talking about him? There's a couple of things, and we previewed some of this before. Number one is it's that old school history, right? And, you know, you'll find places that talk about him being on a level with, on par with, El Chapo and El Mayo in running the Sinaloa cartel, at least for a period of time. You'll see other places where he goes off and he's doing his own thing at one point or another. Um, and, and so it's hard to know, but when you, 
you know, if you start looking at everything, you can start piecing things together. I also think his story is an intriguing one in the sense that if anybody thinks that, you know, being a cartel leader is or was glamorous, I, I don't think he would agree with that. Again, he lost his wife. Um, he lost his kids. He spent the vast majority of his life in prison. I watched a documentary yesterday. Of while I was working, I had it playing, but it was from National Geographic Channel, and it was talking about Henry Hill, you know, the drug dealer gangster who turned uh, state's witness uh, and and that's where uh, Goodfellas comes from. And he ended up going into witness protection, and then he screwed that up. And there was a a couple of little clips of him at the end of his life. One was on Howard Stern, where he basically said, "I'm miserable. I hate my life. You know, everything that I've ever done in my life has turned out to be crap, and my life is horrible." And, you know, this is what the life of crime has led to for me. And somehow that also applies to El Guerrero. And I think that that makes him an interesting character and an interesting story from just a human perspective in, in respects. And, and And again, I'm not taking sympathy, all right? He was a bad dude, right? He did bad things to a lot of people, but he also had a lot of bad happen to him. Then is the the last point, which is what we talked about earlier. What happened in 1985? What happened in 1986? What happened, you know, later? What happened in particular, at La Langosta, was El Chapo there? What happened at Lope de Vega? Was El Chapo ever there? Did El Chapo have any direct role with Agent Camarena? Did El Chapo bury Agent Camarena? Did El Chapo move him to the Bravo Ranch? You know, all of a sudden... In years later, his name has come up more and more and more. If you look at the DA6 reports from the time or contemporaneous ones when the witnesses are first interviewed, his name comes up very little. All of a sudden, it's a big deal because people know about him, right? But how are we ever going to know for sure? You want to know somebody who was there. and There's not a whole lot of them around. And frankly, a couple of them who may be uh, whose names I won't mention, but you know who I'm talking about. I wouldn't trust as far as I could throw them. So asking them what really happened doesn't doesn't get us very far. You know, you've got Rafa and Fonseca and Felix Gallardo. They don't seem to be talking a lot. And when they do, at least with respect to Rafa and, and Felix, you know, they lie and say they've never done anything wrong in their life and they had nothing to do with Agent Camarena, which we both know is wrong, especially with respect to Rafa. 
And, you know, Felix Gardo says, ah, I didn't even know Fonseca and, and Cairo Quintero, which we again know is an absolute lie. So learning from them doesn't really help. El Chapo sitting in a solitary cell in Florence, Colorado, and he's not talking. So you start looking at where are sources of potential information. That leads us to El Guerrero. And it leads us to start thinking about other people, other places to find this stuff out. You know, we've talked about it a lot on this program, these podcasts, and then in on my YouTube channel uh, last week or the week before, I did a kind of a short version and said, you know, here are like six really, really important questions about the Camarena case that we still don't know. This discussion, this thinking about, you know, the history of of the Sinaloa cartel, the involvement of El Guerrero and El Chapo really leads to where else can we find information? How can we take the little bitty tidbits that we find and time together so that we can start, you know, try to answer some of these questions. Including, but not limited to, who killed Agent Cameron and why? Frankly, we don't know. Notwithstanding what Hector says. Okay. That um, is what I wanted to get through today. I hope you found that sort of interesting. Um, I, I find his his personal journey, again, just from a, a human standpoint, to be interesting and tragic on several levels and in no way excusing the things he has done, the people he hurt, the people he's responsible for having killed, all of that. All right. Next week, we're going to continue this we're going to talk about this last concept. Where else do we find information about the cartels? And how do we start making reasonable, sensible evaluations about what happened before or what happened in the past? And does that help us answer questions with respect to the Camarena case and other cases? I, <laughs> and I recognize that's as clear as mud, but I don't want to give anything away. So you got to come back next week. Again, uh, if you like this, let somebody know. If you have comments, send them to me and check out the YouTube channel because I think it's got some uh, some fun things and then presents things in a little bit different way than we've been presenting them here. Content's the same, just the format's a little bit different. And with that, I will bid you adieu. Have a great week. And I look forward to talking to you again on Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. Take care, everyone.